0: So as Dad uh, hinted at, uh, we are in 1 Samuel. Uh, We are just getting started um, in 1 Samuel. We did somewhat of an introduction uh, last week, and uh, we'll jump on into it uh, today. And as Dad uh, mentioned, uh, one of the main characters in today's story is Hannah. So we'll jump on in. Verse 1 of 1 Samuel, there was a certain man of... Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah and we get his genealogy there it says he was an Ephrathite and he had two wives and the name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other was Penina. and Penina had children and Hannah had no children um, I can't help myself every time I read the word Penina. I think of Paninis which are great sandwiches um, in any event, we hear about Elkanah, um, who had these two wives, and we see where he was from. Now, the significance of this is that this is in the hill country, um, about 25 miles north of where Jerusalem uh, is, and, um, and he has these two wives. And uh, we know from later that uh, Samuel, who we're going to learn about, uh, was a priest. Um, well, Priest came from the tribe of Levi, and Levi really didn't have um, uh, territory to call their own. So there's a little confusion there when it says, "Well, uh, he was from this other territory. From he was in Ephrathite, as if he was from uh, the lineage of, of Ephraim." Um, I don't know if, yeah. You know, let me see. if this will show. Yeah, so um, this is the general territory that we're talking about. Uh, In the bottom of this map, um, you have the Dead Sea, and then the Jordan River that goes up, and the the point is, at the very top, you'll see the word Ephraim. So that's where um, Elkanah was from, and it, you can see it's up, basically on top of a mountain in the in the hill country, as it says, and Jerusalem is uh, <coughs> down there. Uh, but I, I I like that that photo, and the other thing uh, I wanted to to point out, uh, if I can, um, this is a map, and I'll probably include this in the podcast notes, uh, but it does a good job of showing where all the territories um, uh, landed. Um, Let me see if I can... Where's my pointer? So, can you see the little red dot? Can you get the lights one more time? Um, We know that when the children of Israel crossed from around here and they crossed over to the area of Jericho and they conquered the land. And then there were parts of the land that were given to the 12 tribes. And so we, on the eastern side of the river, we've got Reuben and Gad and then Simeon, Judah, Dan, Benjamin, and so forth. Well, Joseph is not listed. He was one of the 12 sons of Jacob But to him, there were Manasseh and Ephraim. Those were his sons. So these were the tribes of those two. So we know that um, Elkanah was was of uh, Ephraim, um, but by genealogy was a Levite, even though he was in this territory. And you can see the other areas, Zebulun, Naphtali, Asher, and so forth. Last week, I talked about the Philistines that were not fully driven out like they were supposed to have been. And you see all these cities along the coast. Um, The the nation of Israel were not real happy about hanging out in the water. That was not their thing. These were not the people heading to the beach every year. Um, So the Philistines were seafaring people. They came from... Creed and those areas over there close to Greece. So they had traveled by sea to colonize these areas. Um, so that was their kind of foothold into this territory. Um, anyway, so today we're in this area here. Uh, Shiloh we'll hear about. This is where the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle was located um, at, at the time of this story. Uh, Jerusalem is down here. Uh, but this is the territory that we're talking about. Actually, one more slide. This apparently is what Shiloh looks like today, and they think this may have been the site where the tabernacle was located. So just hilly and rocky, uh, but um, you can see on top of the hills here. So this was, was hill country there. Uh, they think this might have been the place. So, All right, enough of that. The important part of this is he had two wives, and it says one had children, one did not. And so that sets up some drama, right? It does. Um, Verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, possibly this very spot where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests of the Lord. All right, so let's keep track of our characters. We've got Elkanah. We've got his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. We've got the location of Shiloh. And now we hear about Eli, who we'll find out later was basically the high priest. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were also priests, Uh, were there at Shiloh because that's where the tabernacle was located. Verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, She used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So, uh, the the plot thickens. Um, There is a rivalry between these two women. Uh, This word rival, I did not realize, uh, has special meaning. Uh, Back in the day, of course, we know that bigamy was not God's original design, right? Uh, One man, one woman, as Dad was introducing. But back in the day, uh, it had, like many things, get uh, culturally um, distorted, um, and perhaps influenced by the pagan cultures that they had not fully driven out of the land, right? Um, But in any event, uh, it was maybe not accepted, but it was somewhat tradition that if you had a wife, if she had no children, then you could take another wife for the purpose of getting an heir. And we've seen this in other places in Scripture, right? Uh, Abraham was promised an heir. Uh, Nothing was happening, so he... Uh, had Hagar as his wife she was an Egyptian Um, then there's this other two wives situation with uh, Jacob and his wives Rachel and Leah I'll talk about that in a moment but anyway this word rival um, basically meant this second wife and um, uh, it's kind of it's kind of odd but let me see if I can find the scripture reference here Um, in Leviticus, it actually refers to the rival wife. Now, it says, and you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. So you can marry your sister-in-law, but not while her sister, i.e. your first wife, is still alive. So by that rule, Jacob actually violated that rule, right? He married Leah. I'm going back a ways, but he married Leah. He really wanted Rachel. Of course, he was duped um, by uh, their dad. Uh, So he kind of violated that rule. I think this rule came along after him, of course. Uh, But uh, it's just interesting that this was a thing and that there was so much description about it. In fact, Deuteronomy says, and, you know, (laughs) I guess if you've got two women and they're married to the same guy, they kind of know who the favorite is, right? I mean, this, try as you might, I guess you know if you're one of these women who the favorite is. Listen to this. This is from Deuteronomy, one of these verses I've never read in my life before, or at least don't remember. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the of loved have bought have brought him children and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn and this goes on so if your favorite wife has a son but it's not the first son you can't just honor that son because he's your favorite Anyway, this all gets really confusing, but it just strikes me, you know, when things start to go crazy and you start to accumulate wives, and you, all of a sudden now you've got all these other rules that you got, right? And it just, it just is a reminder to me that um, man will mess stuff up, mm-hmm. and then along later you've got all these rules to try to fix it, and the rules never really fix it. Art, you think that's the birth of lawyers? I don't know Um, I always say uh, lawyers are like surgeons they're great when you need them you just don't want to need them very often right Um, and uh, I'll say that I have a daughter-in-law who's an attorney uh, so uh, that's fine my mom worked for attorneys for 30 plus years so uh, God bless them Um, in any event, in this section, we find out that there is drama in the house. And um, every time they go up to sacrifice, and, and it seems like this one is talking about a yearly thing, every time they go up there, it is just a reminder to Hannah of where she is in the totem pole. Because when they offer the sacrifice to the priest, the, the priest gets a portion but then a portion of that sacrifice goes to his family. So Panina gets a, a portion, but there's also a portion to her side of the house for all of her kids. And then Hannah just has her portion. Now, I guess I might, might as well make this point now, but I'll make it more uh, or again later. Apparently Hebrew can be confusing. It would certainly be confusing to me, but apparently to even people who can read Hebrew, it can still be confusing because there is a lot of confusion in this phrase. It says in verse 5, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Well, apparently they can't decide what that really means. Here's what the Hebrew literally means a portion of two nostrils. So, Elkanah gave Hannah a portion of two nostrils. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, right? (laughs) So, some translators say, well, it's like a portion of two faces and face being um, a place of prominence on the body, so they interpret it to mean double portion. Um, apparently, that phrase can also be interpreted as just one portion. I don't know. There's there's legitimate disagreement. I don't think it really matters to the story that much, but it does give me um, it 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 makes the point that. Uh, translation is is a hard thing you know they're they're taking these old texts and and comparing them and and then you know we heard about the dead sea scrolls you know just within the last hundred years um that are you know better preserved and and sometimes can can add um uh, verification of some of these but anyway it's a it's a it's a tricky area but this this concept of a portion of two nostrils just kind of cracked me up Um, because uh, I had not come across that one either. So, we find that this was really affecting her. She couldn't eat. She was sad. And Elkanah comes to her as a loving husband, say, and you know he asks a question where there's no good answer, right? He sets himself up. He says, Am I not more to you than ten sons? You know, well, if that was true, then she wouldn't be so upset that by not having ten sons. Um, so, But I'm sure he meant well, and of course, like most husbands, we we mean well, even though our words don't sometimes work. Um, Or maybe that's just me, I'm not sure. Um, Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So she's there, she's not eating, she's watching everybody eats, and you can basically think to herself... I've had enough of this. I'm I'm stepping away. And it says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, that phrase, the Lord of hosts, um, shows up about 200 times in the Old Testament. This is the very first time it's mentioned. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, And not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So she prayed to God, asked for a son, and then dedicated her son to the Lord. So the big idea here is Hannah was distressed every year. So this has gone on a lot of years, right? Because it says Penina had lots of sons and daughters, so let's say she had six sons and daughters then probably 10 years at least had been going up making the sacrifice seeing all these portions go out to her rival her continuing to be barren and just just she's hating this and but even though it says she wept bitterly she takes that grief that Loss that feeling of being second best, and she takes it to the Lord. And she prays fervently for his son. And it says that, um, it says that uh, I'll give him to the Lord all the day of his life and no razor shall, shall touch his head. And this brings to mind uh, the story of Samson. You know, we know that Samuel is the last of the judges. Samson, just, you know, a 100 years or so before, uh, was a judge, and he had taken this what's called the Nazarite vow. Uh, the Nazarite vow was a vow that you took for a time of service before God, and it had three components to it. One was you didn't cut your hair. One was you didn't drink anything like wine. And thirdly, you don't touch a dead body. It's an interesting trio of things, but that was what designated you as devoting yourself to God. So she's focusing on this one, uh, but it appears to be her intention that, that Samuel uh, would observe the Nazarite vows all of his life. Well, look what happens. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman and said to her, once again, man putting his foot in his mouth, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, ate, and her face was no longer sad. So Eli gives this priestly blessing to her, and it seems that something clicked within her that she accepted that on faith that God was going to do something because she was able to eat and she was no longer sad. That's pretty dramatic. To go from... I mean, that's a big turnaround, right? Just very obvious. An interesting Hebrew thing, this uh, this phrase... Um, I'm I'm a woman very troubled in spirit. Apparently, this phrase has to do with, it's basically you're in a situation you don't want to be. It's an agricultural term for an ox that is yoked up to do work and is not liking it. Which is interesting, right? She is in this circumstance, not of her choosing, and she doesn't like it. And she's forced to carry on and do her duties and go with the troop every year to Shiloh without any kids. And she she doesn't like it. She's troubled greatly by this. Great anxiety and vexation. These, these words in Hebrew are really fascinating to me. Um, so we've got two nostrils, right? We've got two ox. Um, it's interesting. Apparently, this is uh, the only place in the, in the Bible that this phrase shows up. It's, it's interesting. Verse Verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Uh, a lot of times, you know, they put um, connections to names, and uh, there are some names that that kind of, you know, mean Certain things. Um, this is one where apparently the word Samuel doesn't necessarily mean anything, but in Hebrew, apparently when you say it, it sounds like the same phrase for "I've asked for him," and so that was, you know, the the connection there, uh, because uh, she had asked for him, obviously from the Lord. Verse twenty-one. So here we go, setting is changed. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband said to her, do what seems best to you, wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Uh, There's some other scripture um, that suggests that uh, weaning uh, may have uh, taken as long as she may have nursed and so forth until about three years of age. Um, Another thing was interesting, this phrase that Elkanah, her husband, says... um, do what's best, only may the Lord establish his word, apparently can also be translated, may the Lord help you to keep your promise. And if you can imagine a woman giving up her child, even though she asked for this child and she promised, but she's had three years of bonding, you know, with this with this boy, and um, it, he may have known it may be really hard for you to keep your promise. Um, Some people think that, again, for reasons that are a little bit beyond me, but scholars say that there's some connection in the type of wording that Elkanah used in this phrase that is reminiscent of the same wording from this verse in Deuteronomy where it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and then he shall speak to them all that I command him. Uh, It had been... Hundreds of years before there, since there had actually been a prophet uh, like uh, Moses had been, and then this next passage, verse 24, and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, and ephah a flower, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the child to Eli. Um, Another one of these difficulties in Hebrew, apparently there's dispute as to whether she brought one bull or three. Not sure that that matters, but just to show that, you know, is it, is it three one-year-old bulls or one three-year-old bull? I don't know, uh, but neither does anybody else apparently. In any event, verse 26, she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, this is her speaking to Eli, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. The Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. The final Hebrew problem in this passage is that last sentence. And he worshiped the Lord there. Who's the he? Some people think, well, it could have been Elkanah. Worshiping the Lord, kind of putting his fatherly blessing on the gift of Samuel to the Lord. There's apparently pretty good evidence for that. Some people say that it's referring to Samuel, um, who grew up and, 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 and worshiped the Lord there. So um, we don't know. It may not matter, uh, but it gives me respect for the translators. Now, we're going to hit part of chapter 2. And Hannah prayed. So this prayer is really amazing. In fact, it's so amazing that, you know, there's always cynics, right? There's always skeptics. Anybody who's ever posted anything online, you know, there's always going to be some troll who's going to, you know, try to make negative comments about it. So some people have said, well, this this can't be really from that girl. Um, Some writer stuck it in there later. Um, But it bears strong resemblance to Mary's prayer. In fact, a lot of people think that Mary's prayer was actually influenced by Hannah's prayer. Um, But in this prayer, which is really amazing, we learn a lot about God. And I think we also learn a lot about Hannah. She says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She is going to go on for several verses here. But she is not talking a whole lot about Samuel. She is not talking a lot about how she's better. Her focus is on worshiping the Lord. She praises the Lord in this verse and she says that He is her Savior. Verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. So now she's calling out the attributes of God. He's holy. He is unique. He is strength. Verse 3, Talk no more. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And we're going to see this contrast. You know, God is not like this. He is like that. He is amazing. And we're going to see this contrast between good and bad and how um, he can bring down the haughty and raise up the meek. Verse 4, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. In other words, they used to be rich and now they are poor. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life, he brings down a shield and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, he brings low and he exalts, he raises up the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He is the f- foundation of all creation. Verse 9, he'll guard the feet of his faithful ones. The wicked will be cut off for not by might shall man prevail. In other words, it's, it's all about God. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This last phrase is why some of the skeptics say, well, this couldn't have been her because there was no kings. We're going to find out about kings in 1 Samuel because the people are demanding a king. They say, well, she wouldn't know anything about kings. This can't be her. But turn back to Genesis You don't have to, but I'm going to. Chapter 17, so this is a long time before. This is, uh, what, 800 or plus years before. In verse 17, as Isaac's birth is promised to Abraham, um, verse 15, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her. And listen to this, and she shall become nations, and kings of people shall come from her. So it was prophesied that there were going to be kings coming for this nation, for this group of people. Well, maybe Hannah knew that. And that there's actually another place later in Genesis where um, God is talking to Jacob and it says, I'm the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and king shall come from your own body. So, maybe she knew this was coming. Verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered in the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Alright, so the groundwork's been laid. We know about Samuel. We know that his... Um, dad was in the the priestly lineage although he was maybe living outside the territory so maybe he was uh, not actively in the priesthood but he was of that Levite line we hear about his mom uh, Hannah we meet her um, a very godly woman you know she's been faithful she could have asked to skip out I guess all those times but she kept going um, and she turned to the Lord in her distress and he answered and uh so, we're going to learn more about Eli and his sons next week. Um, and uh, the stories are really interesting, and they're only going to get better. All right, this was long one. Sorry, I went as long as I did. But we'll close and, uh, and head on. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, all those people who have put it down and the people that have translated and the people that try to make it clear to us. And I pray your Holy Spirit would prompt us as... You did, Hannah, to remember that you are our salvation and that we can bring our distress to you even when we're yoked into things that we don't like. But you're always there and always listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.